0: welcome to tom bradford's torah class an in-depth old testament bible study that's brought to you from a hebrew roots perspective this week's lesson is week number five the book of amos chapter two the second continuation well our previous lesson we parked ourselves for a time at verse nine of amos chapter two that reads I destroyed the Emory, the Amorites before them, though tall as cedars and strong as oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their root below. Now, a casual reading of this verse seems as though it is very straightforward information that has to do with a key event in the early formation of the nation of Israel, or, as I mentioned last time, it helps to define. What, in God's eyes, makes Israel unique among the nations? What makes Israel, Israel? Yet what this leads to is, just how are we to understand why the Amorites were singled out for destruction? What is this comment about them being tall as cedars and strong as oaks? Obviously their comparison to cedars and oaks is a metaphor. But just as clearly, it was the sheer physical size of the Amorites that was an identifying feature of them. So, was merely being a very large man a bad or an evil thing in itself? So, we looked back in biblical history to the time of the Exodus from Egypt, when, approaching the Promised Land, Moses sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan and two of the spies came back with a story of the land being full of giants okay implying that Israel had no chance against them and i guess was the use of this word giants only a wild exaggerated cultural expression that actually spoke of formidable and skilled warriors that inhabited Canaan or were there literally physically giant men that inhabited this region. Not fifi fi fo fum giants all right, that were 40 feet tall, but rather unusually large, unusually powerful men that were at least a head and shoulders taller and bigger than a typical human male. Now assuming it was only that these were really big men, Why did the spies also call them Nephilim? How did the Israelites know before they ever left Egypt that something called Nephilim existed, although they seemed genuinely surprised to find some of them in Canaan? That then leads us to, what are Nephilim? Where did they come from? Are they mostly ancient myth, or were they real? Well, We found the mysterious Nephilim first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In time, when men began to multiply on earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Adam and I said, My spirit will not live in human beings forever, for they too are flesh. Therefore their lifespan is to be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the ancient heroes, men of renown." Well, to make matters even more mysterious, this Genesis 6 passage speaks of Sons of God looking upon daughters of men who were irresistibly attractive to them. So these sons of God made wives of these women and had children with them. And the resultant offspring became, in English, heroes or men of renown. Another name was mighty men. Now, what in the world does all that mean? Heroes is more often translated from the Hebrew into mighty men, and it comes from the original Hebrew of this passage which is gibor, or more literally it's the plural, so it's giborim. The truth is that the term giborim is not well understood, and so there are various meanings attached as as more or less best guesses. Now, What can be gathered, however, is that these were unusual men, physically powerful men, with special skills, even even with special knowledge. They were quite different from other typical males. In fact, at times, gibor is translated directly to mean giants. But the other tantalizing issue about this passage, one that is simply bypassed, and nearly all theological discussions about Genesis 6, 1-4 is that it is unambiguously connected to the reason that God caused the great flood. Notice the flow of action about these mysterious sons of God, the Nephilim, and the flood. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the ancient heroes, men of renown. Adonai saw the people on earth were very wicked, that all the imaginings of their hearts were made were always of evil only, and he regretted that he made humankind on earth, and it grieved his heart. And Adonai says, I'll wipe out humankind who I've created from the whole earth, not only human beings, But animals, creeping things, and birds in the air, I have regret I ever made them. But Noah found grace in the sight of Adonai. Point is, the existence of the Nephilim, apparently the offspring of the sons of God who had mated with human women, directly led to wanton evil overcoming all mankind, even to the point that it somehow infected the animal kingdom. God's solution was to purge the earth with a great deluge. Oh, what a strange story. Well, last week we discussed how, beginning with the creation of Gentile Christianity in Rome in the fourth century AD, a church doctrine was created that explained this passage as meaning that the human sons of Adam and Eve's son Seth, called sons of God, married females who were not of Seth's bloodline, the daughters of men. While there is utterly not a shred of biblical evidence to back this up, the doctrine was created because the church leadership could not accept the alternative, that the Sons of God were some type of divine beings who came down from heaven to earth had sexual relations with normal human women which then produced some type of hybrid offspring. Why the reluctance to accept this? Because it would have destroyed another established church doctrine that says angels cannot don human flesh, nor did they have the ability to procreate in heaven, and therefore neither could they on earth. Does the Bible back that up? No, it came purely from the minds of men. And this, folks, is the result of Judaism and Christianity turning to man-made doctrines and traditions for its foundational beliefs, superseding and ignoring what the Holy Scriptures actually say. One doctrine builds upon the next, and then when a new issue arises that needs explanation, the answer must be careful not to challenge or disturb the older doctrines. The answer must fit with all the older doctrines, even if it seems ludicrous. So in our previous lesson we embarked on a rather deep exploration of the identity of these Nephilim and also of something called the Watchers. Now we do not find the term Watchers per se in the Bible, but we do find it in other highly valued Jewish religious literature from both the 1st century AD and the 1st century BC, and even earlier slightly. So the Nephilim and the Watchers became an embedded part of Jewish cultural beliefs by that time. Few, nearly all Jews really, they just took it for granted. Few were against it. All the Jews took it as real and true. What makes this important for we believers of the 21st century is that this belief actually shows up. Not only in the Old Testament passages, as in Amos two nine, but also in New Testament passages, such as Second Peter chapter two and in Jude chapter one. However, because of these old and unchallenged church doctrines, we mentally figure out, uh, filter out rather, these mentions of Nephilim, of the watchers, of the fallen angels, and we just read right over them, taking little notice. Now, because a core belief of Torah class is that interpreting Bible passages outside of the context of the passages surrounding it, or outside of the historical realities of the various Bible eras and characters, can do little to properly inform us of divine truth, well, then, for accuracy's sake, we must also include in the definition of the notion of Context the unspoken beliefs that were deeply embedded in the minds and the thoughts of those who wrote the Bible. And as serious students of God's Word, we must never mentally picture the content of Holy Scripture as coming from God in the sense it was being downloaded like a a file sent from heaven. And then supernaturally placed into the minds of specially selected human men on Earth, and then these human men merely opening that file in their subconsciouses, in their subconscious mind, copying the content of, on it, of it onto parchment, without necessarily even understanding what they were writing, behaving sort of like parrots that have just enough ability to vocalize and mimic a few human words they hear but with no understanding of what those words mean. Rather it is that certain divinely chosen human men, all but a couple being Hebrews, were given divine inspiration to write down, mostly in their own words, truths of heaven. Only sometimes in the Bible will we find direct oracles from God that are in fact God's direct words that may not have been fully understood by the writer. However, that tends to occur primarily among God's prophets. Prophets always made it clear in their writings when it was God's direct words they were quoting, not their own thoughts. But the vast bulk of all the prophetic books, Consist of the words and the thoughts of the human prophet, however inspired. And those thoughts were logically always formed within the, well, the understanding and the common knowledge of their own Hebrew culture. Now remember, none of the Old Testament writers thought. That they were recording their words for anyone to read and apply other than for people from their own Hebrew culture. That's who they thought they were writing to and about. And for the most part, but not entirely. It was the same for the New Testament writers. A Hebrew culture with a common beginning in history, traditions that were known, handed down from generation to generation, Therefore, that which was considered common knowledge would simply be stated by the biblical writers as fact, but not further explained or defined as in their minds there was no need to. Their Hebrew readers naturally knew what they were referring to. The story of the Watchers and of the Nephilim fall within the category of common knowledge, not only within the ancient Hebrew culture, by the way. But also within many other ancient cultures of the pagan world, some existing far earlier, by the way, than when God first created and separated out a group of people called Hebrews from the rest of the world. Now, all in all, I understand that it is highly unlikely that many of you have ever read or heard much, if anything, about what it is we're exploring at the moment. Therefore, we're going to continue today with this exploration that I hope will enlighten your understanding of the Bible and of the immutable truths it gives us to live by. So hang in there with me because I think by the time we've completed it, you're going to be glad you did. All right. The last time we met, we talked a great deal about the Nephilim. This week, we'll begin to incorporate the story of the Watchers. The Watchers. Now, in order to do that, a few things need to be said first. To start, we find that within the Jewish cultural world of the second and first centuries BC, it was the book of 1st Enoch where the term the Watchers first appears. Now, don't start frantically searching in your Bible's table of contents, because you're not going to find it there. At least you won't in most Bibles. Rather, much like the 15 books of the Apocrypha that were written by ancient Jews, some of which, by the way, are included in the Bibles of some, de- some denominations and branches of Christianity, so were a number of Jewish religious words, the works called pseudepigrapha, created and taken very seriously by Jewish scholars, sages, and religious leaders in the 1st centuries BC and AD. The Apocrypha is a selection of ancient books that found their way into some Christian Bible versions. For instance, we find them in the original 1611 King James Bible. These apocryphal books were positioned between the Old and the New Testaments. They also contained some maps and genealogies. The Apocrypha was an official part of the King James Bible, the King James Version, for 274 years until being removed not until 1885. A portion of these books were called Deuterocanical books by some entities such as by the Catholic Church. Now, Many Church authorities claimed the Apocrypha should never have been included in the Bible in the first place raising doubt about its validity on the grounds that it wasn't God-inspired. Other Christian religious authorities believe it is valid, it never should have been removed on the grounds that it was considered to be a legitimate part of the Bible for many centuries before it was recently removed a little more than a hundred years ago from our time. On the other hand, pseudopigrapha, which means falsely attributed. These were attributed, these works were attributed to authors who did not actually write them. This reality is not doubted. This kind of literature was widespread. In Greco-Roman antiquity, in Jewish, and Christian, in pagan circles alike, and some pseudoepigraphic works were attributed to pagan authors. Others were named after a whole range of biblical personalities, such as Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Enoch, and more. The pseudoepigrapha resemble the Apocrypha in a general literary character, yet unlike the Apocrypha, they had never been included in the Bible or in rabbinical literature or ever officially deemed inspired of God. All of the Apocrypha, most of the uh, epigrapha, are Jewish works. Some contain some Christianizing additions to them that came later. They provide strong, they provide essential evidence in Jewish literature and thought during that time period between the end of the Old Testament writings, about 400 BC, and the beginning of substantial rabbinic literature that began in the latter part of the first century AD, you know, late New Testament times, we'll call it. Both sets of literature have aroused much scholarly interest since they provide in-depth information about the Jewish religion as it was at the turn of the era of the between the conclusion of the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament and the creation of the Mishnah biblical law and oral law Jewish law And they are of immense help in explaining how Rabbinic Judaism and even the earliest forerunner of modern Christianity came into being. For our purposes today, it is important to understand how seriously all these works were taken by ancient Jews of all levels of society, and how thoroughly intertwined and their religious thought processes these writings were. I make no claim as to their inspiration, or frankly, no claim to their lack of it. We're simply going to take them as reliable historical information of that era, and as largely what the thought trajectories of the Jewish people were and how they believed. We can scoff at it they believed it. And in order for us to gain some usable understanding of this, we're going to begin with the book of Enoch, the book of technically 1st Enoch, a pseudo epigraphic writing. We have no idea who actually wrote it, but it seems to have been penned in the 2nd century BC. Now, since probably few, if anyone, Listening to me, watching me, has read first Enoch. We're, we're uh, necessarily going to have to take some substantial excerpts from that book in order to introduce us to the concept of the watchers. Now perhaps it is best to start with a brief explanation, just about the overall flow of the story of the watchers, as explained by John C. Collins. He says this. First Enoch chapters 6 to 16 tell the story of the Watchers, in which two stories seem to be woven together. In one, the leader of the fallen angels is named Asael, Azazel in the Ethiopic text, and the primary sin is improper revelation. In the other, the leader's Shemeazah And the primary sin is marriage with humans and then the procreation of giants. The watchers beget giants on earth by their union with human women. Out of these giants come evil spirits that led humanity astray. This motif is elaborated further in the book of Jubilees. And in the short term, The crisis of the watchers is resolved when God sent the great flood to cleanse the earth. Okay. Now, in a moment, I'm going to read to you some pertinent passages from the book of 1st Enoch. First, though, keep in mind, recall what we read together earlier today in Genesis chapter 6. It was that some mysterious beings called sons of God came to earth, impregnated human women produced gibberim, mighty men, that had much to do with the evil that had infected the entire global population of humankind, and that God's solution for this crisis Was to destroy by means of flood every last vestige of human life on the planet, except for eight people. And then also to destroy every last air breathing creature on earth, except for those relative few Noah would load onto a gigantic boat, the Ark. Unfortunately, Genesis leaves us much to wonder about this passage because no further explanation is offered. The book of 1 Enoch essentially purports to answer many of those unanswered questions that Genesis 6 ought to naturally spawn, but which Christianity has pushed aside with an frankly absurd explanation in a refusal to face the challenge with intellectual integrity. Okay, let's start with 1 Enoch chapter 6. You actually have this in your handouts, probably very small writing, but it would be best if you could follow along with me if you can. I'm going to read it to you. And it came to pass, when the sons of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the watchers, the sons of the heaven, saw and lusted after them, and they said to one another, Come, let us choose wise from among the children of men, and beget us children. And Shemihazah, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Then let us all swear an oath all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then they swore they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it, and they were an all two hundred who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon, and they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it, and these are the names of their leaders. Shemiazah, this one was their leader. Artikof, second to him, Rem Ashel, third to him, Kokabel, fourth to him, Arumahel, fifth to him, Ramel, sixth to him, Daniel, seventh to him, Zekel, eighth to him, Barakel, ninth to him, Asael, 10th to him. Hermani, 11th to him. Matarel, 12th to him. Ananel, 13th to him. Sitawel, 14th to him. Samshel, 15th to him. Sariel, 16th to him. Tumiel, 17th to him. Turiel, 18th to him. Yamiel, 19th to him. Yahadiel, 20th to him. These are their chiefs of the tens. Let's move on to Enoch chapter 7. Starting verse one. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives. Each chose for himself one. And they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant and they bare great giants. And the giants begat Nephilim. And to the Nephilim were the Eliud and they were growing in accordance with their greatness they consumed all the acquisitions of men and when could men when men could no longer sustain them the giants turned against them and devoured mankind and they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood and then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones first Enoch chapter 8 And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates, and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them, and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of eyelids, all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. And the sons of men made for themselves and for their daughters, and they transgressed and led led astray the holy ones. And there was much godlessness upon the earth. And they made their ways desolate. Shemiaza taught enchantments and root cuttings. Hermani taught sorcery for the loosing of spells and magic and skill. Barakel taught the signs of the lightning flashes. Kokabel taught the signs of the stars. Zekel taught the signs of the shooting stars. Artakov taught the signs of the earth. Shamsiel taught the signs of the sun, Saharel taught the signs of the moon, and they all began to reveal mysteries to their wives and to their children, and as men were perishing, the cry went up to heaven. Now first, I want to point out that in chapter 7 we read, And the giants begat Nephilim, and to the Nephilim were Eliut. Now, most likely this sequence of the terms giants, then Nephilim, then Eliud are speaking of three successive generations of the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men, like children, grandchildren, great grandchildren. Second, what happens next in chapter nine is that four archangels, Michael, Sariel, Raphael, and Gabriel notice the horrors that are happening on earth as a result of the sin of these heavenly beings, and they go to Jehovah God to ask Him to resolve it. God replies to their request in 1 Enoch chapter 10. And listen carefully, because I think you're going to get the gist of it. You're going to recognize it. Then the Most High said, the great Holy One spoke, and he sent Sariel to the son of Lamech, that's Noah, saying, Go to Noah and say to him in my name, hide yourself and reveal to him that the end's coming. The whole earth is going to perish. Tell him that a deluge is about to come on the whole earth and destroy everything on earth. Teach the righteous one what he should do, the son of Lamech how he may preserve himself alive and escape forever. From him a plant will be planted, and his seed will endure for all the generations of eternity." Later in chapters 10 and 11 we read how God sent the archangels to deal with these sinful problem creatures who are to blame for the earth's rampant wickedness. There we read, until the day of their judgment and consummation, until the eternal judgment is consummated, then they will be led away to the fiery abyss, to their torture, to the prison where they will be confined forever. And at the time of the judgment, which I shall judge, they will perish for all generations. Destroy the spirit of the half-breeds and the sons of the watchers, because they have wronged men. Okay, now I know this is a lot to take in. So I'm going to quote to you part of what Annette Oshiko Reed says about it, kind of as a summary, what we just read. The birth of the giants is explored in 1 Enoch in terms of the mingling of spirits with flesh. Angels properly dwell in heaven humans properly dwell on earth. But the nature of the giants is mixed. This transgression of categories brings terrible results. After their physical death, the giants demonic spirits come forth from their dead bodies to plague humankind. According to First Enoch, The angelic transmission of heavenly knowledge to earthy humans can also be understood as a contamination of distinct categories within God's orderly creation. As inhabitants of heaven, the Watchers were privy to all the secrets of heaven. Their revelation of this knowledge to the inhabitants of earth was categorically improper as well as morally destructive. Okay, so here's what we need to take from what we studied thus far. This information and story about the watchers and about the Nephilim and the giants and so on is what the second temple era Jews believed. That is those Jews who returned from Babylon right on up through the New Testament era. And so they understood Genesis 16 within that context. The entire community of the Jews of that era, even including the writers of the New Testament, clung to that understanding as well. We certainly won't learn any of this by means of Christian history or Christian doctrine, because this history and their doctrines are more committed to the writings of Christian religious authorities than to the Holy Scriptures themselves. I haven't the time to go into the matter more deeply, but you can research on your own to confirm what I'm about to tell you. That prior to the enormous sea change that occurred in the 4th century AD, when a new Gentiles' only faith based in Rome was established with its foundation built on man-made doctrines and traditions rather than, than on Holy Scripture. and I'm describing the birth of modern day Christianity. The earliest church fathers. <laughs> Hear this, the earliest church fathers from the second and third centuries understood Genesis 6, and the matter of the rebellious divine creatures mating with human women, producing hybrid offspring, in exactly the same way the Jew- Jewish community had for centuries. Irenaeus, Origen, they specifically wrote about it. Further, from a Jewish and a Christian perspective, we find not only excerpts from First Enoch in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but also ample evidence that the Essenes who wrote those scrolls fully subscribed to what the Book of Enoch taught about the Nephilim and the Watchers. Justin Martyr he accepted the Watchers' story, so did Tertullian. What this means is that we need to understand that the Great Flood was primarily meant to resolve this intractable issue of a crisis of worldwide wickedness caused by the Watchers. Adam's sin was secondary to the real reason for the flood because Adam's was a sin that would perpetually reside within the human nature of all humans, within our DNA, so to speak, for all time. I mean, the fact that Noah and seven more humans were saved by God in order to survive the Flood and replant humanity on earth, guaranteed that Adam's sin would continue to plague humanity, as it always had, with or without the Nephilim and their progeny being around. Can you see that? Is there any physical evidence of huge people living on this planet? Oh, yes. Perhaps the most famous is the Giant of Castle now, a human skeleton that was discovered in 1890 in France, which has been examined by the top men in the field from various prominent universities and they all agree it's real. The skeleton represents a, per- a person that is about 11.5 feet tall. Further, several human skull- skulls were found in approximately the same area intact that measured between 28 and 32 inches in circumference. This represents humans that range between 10 and 15 feet in height. So why is this not discussed more? Because other professors that operate in the medical field have declared that it is biologically impossible for humans to grow that high. Therefore, although there is no alternate explanation for the size of these human skeletons, they still refuse to accept the reality of them even though they can see them with their own eyes. Much the same way, folks, that not that long ago dinosaur remains were dismissed as the devil's deception because scientists had decided that no animals could ever be that large. Another take from 1 Enoch, Enoch and from Jewish, other Jewish apocrypha and pseudoepigraphic literature on this subject provides an answer to another Christian controversy and dilemma. Where did demons come from? The Bible provides no real answers, only frustrating clues that question. When we incorporate the story of the Watchers into the body of inspired biblical works to try to ascertain the origin of demons, we find the demons are not fallen angels per se, except that if one insists on calling the Watchers and those heavenly beings who came to earth to impregnate human females, angels that fell from grace, or perhaps former angels, however you want to think about it. Further, Satan did not create demons, certainly not God, nor are demons the spirits of typical dead human beings, that is, people that are 100% human, they are not a hybrid. Rather, if one accepts First Enoch and a few other ancient Jewish religious documents on the subject, demons are said to be the disembodied evil souls of the deceased offspring of those heavenly beings that improperly mixed with human beings. Now, while I cannot say with certainty that this is indeed the case, there is much more evidence for this conclusion than for almost any other explanation that's ever been put forward by Judaism or by Christianity so far. Now, I want to cover one final matter on our exploration that's going to bring us to a conclusion today. This is yet another important understanding that's going to help us throughout our personal studies of the Holy Scriptures. It is that most Christians are unaware that this same story of the Watchers and its association to the Great Flood is found in ancient tablets from the Mesopotamian Potamian religion tablets that were penned long before the Hebrew religion ever existed now much of what, I, much of what I'm about to tell you actually is no longer particularly controversial to Christian academics See, but the problem is very little that is ever filtered down to our theological schools, not to our seminaries, certainly not to pastors and Bible teachers. The concern seems to be that lay people and those who run our churches at a local level will misunderstand, and they will believe that the veracity of the Bible is being put into question simply because it's undeniable that older, other, larger, (laughs) ancient Middle Eastern cultures had the same ideas as the writers of the Scriptures, only created within the framework of their peculiar language and culture, and from far earlier times than even that of Abraham. I want to alleviate that concern by saying that to me Think along this logical line for a moment. To me, nothing would be more normal and natural for us to expect than for ancient historical events that would have affected all humanity worldwide such as creation itself, the Great Flood, so much more to have been documented and passed down within the traditions and legendary stories coming from a number of different cultures. I mean, if this didn't happen. THEN one has to legitimate, legitimately wonder about the truth of such a story that affects our entire globe if the only place we ever find it is in the Bible. I we mean, remember, in relation to the age of the earth, the establishment of humans and then human civilizations, the Bible occurred much, much later in history. The creation did not happen only for Hebrews to experience. Or to know about. Neither did the matter of the great flood or the cause for it. Divine creatures mating with human women to create giants with special skills and knowledge. That was the problem. And it's stated in our Bibles. Now, in the Mesopotamian religions of ancient times, prior to Abraham, there were written accounts about legendary creatures that in their language they called the Apkulu. And these creatures were said to have obtained immense wisdom from the gods and were essentially the great heroes of early Mesopotamian cultures. In one of their ancient works uncovered called the 21 Poultices, we hear of seven of these creatures of immense wisdom and knowledge. They are subservient to the god Ea. And it is said that those seven sages, seven apkulu, were created in the river. And they were charged with overseeing the proper functioning of the creatures who inhabited both heaven and earth. They taught humankind how to create civilizations, the use of tools of what passed for ancient medicine among other arts and crafts. Now the river That is spoken of is actually the primeval deep for the Mesopotamian culture. It was a place of water. It was located under the earth. It's the equivalent of the biblical abyss. So the first thing to grasp is that by means of these Apkalu, humankind made technical and social advances that otherwise would have taken longer, or perhaps otherwise been impossible altogether. So it was thought that the wisdom and the knowledge they passed along to humanity was divine in its source and therefore totally beneficial to mankind. Now the cuneiform scholar Amaranus says that in Babylonian society of old there was a tradition that the seventh king to exist since creation, and therefore someone who existed before the flood, ascended to heaven without dying. And there he learned much from the gods. The seventh king was named Enmen Duranki, who was said to have obtained this knowledge specifically from the gods Adad and Shamash. We need to notice, Enoch was the seventh biblical patriarch since Adam, and he existed before the flood, exactly the same as the Mesopotamian story. In Genesis chapter five is the so-called genealogy of Adam. There we read about this Enoch. By the way, in Hebrew his name is is uh, uh, Hanoch. And here's what we read in Genesis 5, 18 through 24. You read, Jared lived 162 years and fathered Hanok, fathered Enoch. After Hanok was born, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. And all Jared lived, lived um, 962 years, then he died. Hanok lived 65 years and fathered Methuselah. After Methuselah was born, Hanok walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. In all Hanok lived 365 years. Hanok walked with God, and then he wasn't there, because God took him. See that Enoch was taken by God has always meant to the Hebrews, and within Christianity, that he did not die, but was rather translated alive. To heaven. There, according to Jewish legend, he joined God and sat on a heavenly council where he learned secrets and mysteries meant only for heavenly beings and not earthbound humans to know. And as we follow the story of the Apkalu in Mesopotamian records, they were envisioned as fully divine beings that appeared prior to the flood and they bred with human women, and so they produced these quasi-divine hybrid beings. This is precisely how First Enoch speaks of the Watchers and what they did. The difference is that in the Mesopotamian religion, the resultant offspring were not evil, but rather they were good, and they were the critical source of knowledge for raising of human civilization to a higher level, but for the Hebrews, the offspring was evil. The wicked product of parents that had crossed over a never-to-be-crossed-over boundary that separated heavenly beings and their special knowledge from earthly beings and our necessarily limited knowledge. This is why, in the Israelite mind, the spirits of these dead offspring some of which were giants were considered evil, and this is the origin of demons. Circling back now to Amos chapter 2 verse 9, and understanding now what the Israelites of Amos' era believed. Now that you know this, try, if you can, to imagine. What Amos had to have been thinking as he wrote this passage, and what his Israelite readers would have been mentally picturing as they read it. It is that the Amorites, or at least some of their population, were the descendants of these evil giants who Amos described as tall as cedars and strong as oaks. Therefore, The Amorites were, in God's eyes, worthy only of destruction, and naturally he wanted his set apart people, Israel, to be his earthly instrument of their destruction. Okay, we're going to end our exploration of this fascinating topic here, and we'll take up at verse 10 in Amos chapter 2 the next time we meet.